Thank you, Lois, and the team today for leading us in our music ministry. Children, you are uh, dismissed at this time. It's good to be with you today. Welcome to those of you who are in the building and with us online to Calvary Monument Bible Church. It's a joy to worship the Lord in the community of saints. Our memory verse for the month of September comes from the Gospel of Mark, a gospel which we will begin to study today, and we can say it together this morning. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will turn you into fishers of people, Mark 1.17. Very good. We begin the Gospel of Mark today, and I don't know about you, but I feel like we live at a time and at a place where we could all afford to hear some good news. Anybody need some good news? It's uh, kind of a crazy world that we live in today. And you know, some days we can wake up and we can feel pretty good about the way that things are going and the way our day is unfolding and things are happening. And then all of a sudden we see something or we hear something or we read something. And inevitably it seems like things all of a sudden become more complicated. We hear of loss. We hear of grief. We look around and we hear of wars, rumors of wars. There's natural disaster. There's warring in our own towns and communities. There's division and polarization. There's poverty there's hunger, there's all kinds of things that can threaten to distract, to pull us down, and to take our focus off of the good news. But the good news is powerful. The good news is divine. The good news is eternal. And good news is that in the scriptures, in the word of God, we have four counts, four testimonies of, sorry about that, I don't know what that is, four testimonies of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so we open the Gospel of Mark today, and we are going to find that of all of the Gospels, Mark is going to move at a frantic or frenetic pace. And when he slows down, and there will be moments in our study where the gospel writer will slow down, when he slows down in his writing, he does so with the greatest of purpose and intention. Some scholars have characterized Mark's gospel as a simple and vigorous eyewitness account of Jesus' life. One of the Words it's used over and over again that we'll find is this word immediately. And it carries the tone and the thrust of the overall gospel message of Mark, moving us quickly from scene to scene in Jesus' life. His style, we're going to discover, is personal. It's reader-friendly. He's going to address his readers directly. He's going to use rhetorical questions and even questions that motivate and prompt a response from those who are reading. The desired response in Mark's gospel would be that we would be compelled to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. 
the true and only Son of God, and that we should follow him as such. Most scholars place the writing of the Gospel of Mark somewhere between uh, 63 and 70 A.D. That's less than 50 years after the death of Jesus. This dating would place the writing of this account at the same time of the first Jewish roaming war that was taking place. During this war, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, and as historian Josephus claims, somewhere around a million people were killed in that war. Some 97,000 were captured or enslaved. Others were scattered throughout the broader Mediterranean region. Some scholars have determined that certain sects of Judaism were either destroyed or severely disabled and incapacitated during this time, uh, including both the Essenes community and the Sadducees. And with this in view, there is another very significant event that took place in this same historical frame. It's known as the Great Fire of Rome. It took place during Nero's reign, right about in this time when the Gospel of Mark would have been being written, and Nero actually blamed Christians for the fires that had devastated Rome. This led to the severe persecution of the early church as it existed in Rome. And so the author, Mark, is writing with his Gentile readers in view. His desire and his goal is to encourage and to motivate perseverance in the believers of the early church as they were experiencing growing hostility and persecution. Perhaps this is why Mark's writings begin with an emphasis on the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when the people of God are being crushed and experiencing suffering and affliction and persecution, what is the news that we need to hear? And if it is good news, how are we to see, to know, and to experience its goodness? Who is our perfect, unblemished example in persecution? What were Jesus' patterns? What were his postures, attitudes, and behaviors as he lived as the suffering servant? And what do we come to learn about God as we reflect on the nature and the character of the one whom he sent to save us? All of these questions and more we will unpack as we begin our series through the Gospel of Mark. It's a series where we will endeavor to walk through the text with our eyes on our suffering servant Savior. Today we'll read from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. And before we read, let's ask the Lord to help, help us as we study his word together. Father, we are a people in need of good news. Lord, we need it before, we need it the day of, and we need it every day after our salvation. This world, Lord, is hostile. It's filled with sin, brokenness, 
turmoil, all of the effects of which have a part in our lives. We live in this world and we are not unblemished as your son was. We hurt, we strive, we fight, we war, we argue, we worry, we hurt. And Lord, we need this good news. We need it. And so, Lord, as we open your word and as we look at the text today and we see and we hear and we learn of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah sent from you to us, I pray that you would use it to motivate us, to encourage us, to lift us. That we might leave this place changed, or as Pastor Bob put it last week, agents of change, ready to be used of you in whatever ways your spirit determines to be salt and light in the spaces you plan us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. In his presentation of servant Jesus, Mark's gospel begins with the good news that Jesus is the Son of God, period. This is a short and succinct way of saying that Jesus is uniquely, divinely human. And as such, we will discover that Jesus shares characteristics with both God and those whom he has been sent to seek and save, humanity. 
And indeed, the good news begins here, that God sent his son in human form into the world, one who is uniquely able to identify and relate with us. The hint that this was both the eternal and divine plan of God is provided right away. It says the beginning of the gospel. And it hearkens our imaginations back to where? The beginnings in what book? What does the beginning of Mark sound like? The beginning of Genesis. In the beginning. Though the plan is divine and eternal, at this point in history, God is beginning something new. In sending someone who is full of life and light and hope. Jesus, he's the very one who was promised in the law and the prophets, and now he has come into the world. And immediately the writer takes us to the prophecy from the First Testament regarding the coming Messiah. In this text, in this prophecy, in verse 2 and 3, and we'll read it again, he's actually pulling from texts that are on your screen, text from Exodus and Isaiah and Malachi. Look at verse 2 again quoting from these passages. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Good news for a people who were living as aliens and sojourners in a foreign country. People such as us. Good news is that God keeps his promises. People under immense turmoil, people under intense scrutiny and persecution, people who had been uh, blamed and criticized as being responsible for what was the most destructive fire in the Roman Empire. God has been and always will be faithful to be with us just as he has said. And this truth, Jesus, the Son of God, God with us, is the clear and compelling evidence that we need to convince us that we serve an ever-faithful God. And for Christians that are walking through difficult days, there, there are some here today. Some of us here today have recently experienced loss. mourning over the loss of a loved one. Some of us received bad news this week at work. Maybe a diagnosis that we've received that's been difficult for us. As we walk through difficult days, God's steadfast love and faithfulness as revealed in Jesus is all we need to motivate us to persevere and continue on in the work he has given us to do. Notice that the voice is shouting in the wilderness, or in some of your translations, it says the desert. The wilderness or the desert is a place throughout history where God has communed with his people. 
We might be present in this space today or listening at home and feeling ourselves like we're alone in this vast and treacherous wilderness. And in this moment, it's difficult for us to hear and see and reflect on these words and know that God is present with us right now. But he is. And when God is present, as we see in the gospel, in the person of Jesus, his presence is always with great effect. Sometimes the good news is what we need and what we need to be reminded of just so we can remember that we are not alone. Though the wilderness feels all at once vast and void and vicious, there is one who walks with us, who never leaves us, who never forsakes us, who will accomplish his purposes through us. All he asks is that we walk by faith. And what we soon discover in the gospel is that even in the wilderness, God will mightily use and work through those who are faithful. Quickly, Mark introduces us to an important character in the early narrative of Jesus' life and his ministry. He's identified in our text as John the Baptist, or in some of your text is John the Baptizer. He's kind of weird, right? Are any of you wearing camel hair this morning? <laughs> he probably didn't fit in in most social contexts. I don't know about you, but my cereal bowl had no locust in it today. Maybe some honey. It might have been honey. I don't know if it was wild, though. But here in the midst of all of this, there's a faithful voice preaching in the wilderness. Good news. A time has come. A time to change allegiances. To imagine a new and better way of being alive in this world. A time to confess and receive forgiveness of sins. Verse 4, in the wilderness, John the baptizer began preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People from the whole Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem were going out to him, and he was baptizing them in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. We see this word repentance attached to John and his baptism, and the idea of repentance means to turn away from one thing in favor of turning toward another. In short, it means to change loyalties. In that day, it was a word that was often employed in a militaristic context. It was used of a soldier who had abandoned or laid down his loyalty for the cause of one army, only to take up and give his loyalties to the cause of another. In a spiritual sense, we find that true repentance always comes together with confession and the forgiveness of sins. Those who are truly repentant have been quickened by the Spirit to see how their lives fall short of God's standard of holiness and righteous living. Turning from our first loyalty, the patterns and the attitudes of sin that only lead to death, in repentance, we turn to the person of Jesus, 
adopting his words and his way of living in this world. Confessing that we have fallen short and that we are a people who need his grace, mercy and forgiveness. He promises to give it to us and we receive it. Repentance is a posture of genuine brokenness over our former allegiance and our former way of living. And it is a desire to no longer live in that manner where sin is our master. But now to cling to the person and the work of Jesus and to look at his righteousness and the way that he lived, his example and his words as our new standard for how we are to live and move in this world. There is language in this text that may be familiar to you as you read it. And if you read it on your own, I always encourage you when you read a text of scripture, read it three or four or five times because you begin to see things from the Old Testament and they're all over here. The language of the Exodus narrative, which we studied a year or so ago, it flows through these first few verses. It is intentional. For indeed, those who experience new life in Christ have escaped the bondage of slavery and the oppression of sin. We are free, as Romans says, from those things. And for the Israelites who were living as slaves in Egypt, one would be sent to them, a voice from the wilderness. And he would take them through the parted waters into new life, new beginning, new reality. No longer enslaved by Pharaoh, the people could now set their minds, along with their hands and their feet, to worshiping and adoring Yahweh alone. Now, we know they didn't do such a good job. We know about the golden calf. They struggled. They failed. They stumbled. And sometimes the people of God today do as well. But God forgives. And as we return to Mark's gospel, the message of John is catching fire among the people as described all of the people from the Judean countryside and surrounding areas are coming. God always uses his good news to change minds and to stir hearts towards repentance and confession leading to forgiveness. The content of the good news here is that God has sent his promised son, Messiah, or the anointed one, into the world. And in him, for the repentant and the contrite, the one who will believe, there is forgiveness that leads to eternal, abundant life. And as John faithfully proclaims this message and calls people towards the baptism of repentance, God is working to draw the crowds to John. His audience is growing. And not because he was a cool hipster guy. Because God was at work. And God uses his words in powerful ways. He still does that today, amen? Amen. Absolutely, friends. He still uses his word in powerful ways today as people are faithful to boldly proclaim it. And through John's life, both the way he spoke and the way he lived, 
people could see that something was different. This guy doesn't live like everyone else around here. Something's different. Verse 6, John wore a garment made of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist. Okay, I have the leather belt. All right. He ate locusts and wild honey. And isn't it interesting? Again, we say the text from the Old Testament's all over. And again, right here, 2 Kings 1.8, a near perfect match to the way Elijah was described in the Old Testament. Symbolism all over the early narrative of Jesus. Mark does not want us to miss that Jesus is the promised Messiah. John's message regarding Jesus was that he was coming in power, that his worth would be unrivaled, that his baptism would be even more transformational than John's. For those who believe in Jesus, Jesus gives them the right to be children of God, adopted into the family of God, and inhabited permanently and powerfully by the Holy Spirit. And through Jesus' baptism, we are lifted from darkness and plunged into perpetual light and life, adorned with the robes of Christ's righteousness, named in the book of life, found in the community of saints known as the church, and equipped and empowered to do the work that he has given us to do for his glory and for the good of those he brings into our pathways. And though John implied that Jesus' baptism would be far more significant than his own, it would actually be Jesus who would come to John to demonstrate his own submission and obedience to his Father, God. This is a regular pattern beginning early in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to see it over and over again in the Gospel. A regular pattern of Jesus' ministry would be one where he would exemplify the very attitudes and actions that he was calling his disciples to themselves. Jesus calls his disciples to faithfulness. He himself is perfectly faithful. He calls us to serve. He himself is the standard of servitude, even to the point of washing his own disciples' feet. He says that we should be patient Kind and gentle, he himself defines himself as lowly, meek, and humble. He calls his followers to obedience while Jesus himself is obedient to the point of death. He says that discipleship would require sacrifice, the taking up of one's cross, the denial of oneself, while Jesus himself was demonstrating it wholly and completely by going to the cross and sacrificing or laying down his own life to atone for our sins. Jesus would call his disciples to repentance, to faith, and baptism. And while Jesus himself had nothing to repent of, he goes through the waters to demonstrate that he was fully aligned with the will and the desires of his Father. Through baptism, in the waters of baptism, many of you in this room have experienced a believer's baptism. If you're here and, and you haven't, I would suggest that be something that you consider. Through baptism, the believer makes a public proclamation regarding their identity. This is what baptism is. The waters of baptism mark our identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus. 
In a believer's baptism, we are publicly proclaiming to our community that we now identify as a disciple of Jesus. And he's delighted in it when his children do that. And the father here is delighted in the son. In love, Jesus would delight his father by being willing to identify with those whom he was sent to seek and save. Even though he had no sin, he went through the waters of baptism. The spotless lamb demonstrating his humanity and humility by identifying with us. Paul wrote it this way in his letter to the Corinthian church. He said, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him, we would become the righteousness of God. That is a deep and contemplative statement. Full of meaning. With no need for repentance or confession himself, Jesus submits to the waters of baptism to identify with the very ones he would lay down his life for. Jesus' baptism in the water foreshadows for us in his own words a future baptism, one that would be unto death and the scriptures where he speaks of that are on the screen for you at this point in Jesus's life most scholars believe that he was around 30 years of age as he prepares to enter the waters of John's baptism and it is here where Jesus is fully embracing his calling and his role as the suffering servant messiah Son of God. Look at verse 9. Now in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my one dear son, in you I take great delight. And here again in these verses, there's imagery that's soaked with terminology from the First Testament. Not only that, but there's breadcrumbs hinting at future events and ministry in the life of Jesus. At the beginning of his ministry, the heavens split and the Spirit descends. What happens at the end of his ministry? The curtain tears and the Spirit is left to guide and help in the formation of the church. And here, the image of the dove. The dove in the Bible is a bird that comes to represent humility and self-sacrifice, peace, as Jesus himself is the one through whom we can find peace with God. And then the voice from heaven, the voice of the Father expressing his pleasure, delighting in his Son. What does that look like? For those of you in this room that are fathers, you can relate to that concept, that idea of delighting in your children. Wow. Makes your heart full to feel proud of your sons and your daughters. And we're given an image of the father delighting over the son. 
in whom he is well pleased. And again, the text of the Old Testament ringing, ringing all throughout the beginning of Mark's gospel. One hallmark of Mark's gospel is going to be Jesus' constant concealment of his own identity. We're going to see over and over again, he says to his disciples, tell no one about this. Or he'll perform a miracle, and after he's done, he'll simply fade off, disappear, conceal himself. Many in Mark's gospel are left in mystery, in awe, and wonder. And here we sit today, church, and how wonderfully privileged are we that we can see his majesty in full glory. Mark, he knows, his readers, of whom we are a part, we know the identity of Jesus. The disciples, they know the identity of Jesus in the gospel. And there are a few others, supernatural beings, that know of his identity as well. We can see it laid bare before us. We are left to marvel at the magnificence of Jesus in this gospel, while others are left in mystery. And a question that we might personally reflect on maybe this week and wrestle with, perhaps as a point of application, might be how does our knowledge of Jesus as the promised Messiah sent from God change the way we think and live in this world? He does not reveal himself in this manner to all people. For me and hopefully for all of us, this knowledge is far too humbling that Jesus would reveal himself to us. It should provoke within us a deep sense of gratitude and humility. Do you remember one of Jesus' disciples, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas, actually asked him that question? How is it, Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to us in this manner and not to the world? Tumbling. Provoking gratitude. And perhaps those words taken together, humility and gratitude, might summarize what it means for us to walk by faith in the fear of the Lord. Philippians, Paul writes, more than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung that I may gain Christ. Paul's writing from a prison cell. The readers, first readers, the first readers reading this gospel were living in times when the church was under immense persecution. And the greatest, most treasured, most precious knowledge that any of us can hold on to and cling to in this world, whether we're walking in the good days or the bad days, is the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen? Mark's desire for his readers from the beginning of the gospel is very clear. Good news, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the one in whom the Father delights, has come. He is here. And isn't that amazing? 
that God, of all the gifts that he could send us, of all the things that he could give us, he gives us the most precious and most treasured thing that any of us could ever imagine. The thing, the one, the person in whom he delights, he sent to us. A father who doesn't hold back. Who loves so abundantly, so richly. Mark wants us to see that our Lord identifies with his father and those he came to save. That he has taken on the role of the suffering servant, the savior that was sent to seek and save the lost. And now we discover that the work of Jesus from the beginning of his ministry would be marked by turmoil and adversity and temptation. Jesus had come to put an end to sin and death. He had come to destroy the effect and effectiveness of the devil and his schemes. And as we keep this reality at the forefront of our minds, the next confrontation that Jesus has in this narrative is seemingly inevitable. Take a look at verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately, there's that word, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, Jesus. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, enduring temptations from Satan. He was with wild animals, and angels were ministering to his needs. Shortly after his baptism, Jesus is compelled by the Spirit to enter the wilderness. And historically, through the Bible, the wilderness is this place that's associated with both hostility and preparation. Jesus' wilderness experience is going to provide both. There's going to be hostility and there's going to be preparation for his ministry. In just a few verses earlier, we see the waters of baptism. And as you're reading, don't those waters feel far more safe and secure we just want to stay at those waters, don't we? Isn't that nice? It's a baptism. Spirit's descending like a dove. The Father's saying, I delight in you. I'm well pleased. And we're like, yes, this is so nice. And then, there's wild animals. You see that? It's right in the text. We go from the peaceful and beautiful waters of baptism where a spirit's descending like a dove into a wilderness with wild animals and nothing could more clearly show us the frantic pace of Mark's gospel than this transition. Mm. There's a lot less unknowns and insecurities on the other side of the waters of baptism, on the immediate other side of the waters of baptism. And yet, like Jesus, all of us, all of us are called into the wilderness. And also, like Jesus, we can walk through the mystery and the wilderness, facing the temptations of the adversary, knowing that we are not alone. The same spirit that was with Jesus in the waters of the baptism is the same spirit that was compelling him to go into the wilderness is the same spirit that was with him while he was in the wilderness. 
And for the disciple of Jesus alive today, the waters of baptism, the spirit that's with us there is the same spirit that goes with us when we leave this place and go into the world that God has planted us in. And in Christ, we have everything that we need to brave the unknown and face the hostilities that are present within our own wilderness experiences. Do we believe it? Do we believe it? And if we say that we do, do the patterns of our lives reflect that we truly believe it? The Son of God, Jesus, He's not going to hide from the adversary. He's not going to climb up into an ivory tower and lock Himself in. He will not be frightened by the wild animals and the beasts in the wilderness or the things that go bump in the night. He knows what He's been called to do. He knows who He is. He's the victor. And he will be compelled to confront these challenges head on. Answering the temptations and the hostilities of this world with the guiding light of God's word. We remember that, don't we, in the wilderness? How does Jesus respond to the adversary? With the truth of the scriptures. In the beginning, there was Adam. Adam was given this wilderness, this garden, this beautiful garden that was designed to meet his every need. He was set up for success. He was even given a beautiful bride. And one single temptation felled him and forever changed the course of history. But this is a new beginning. And here in chapter one, we are introduced to a true and greater Adam. One whose name was Jesus, who would stand and deliver, who would face three very direct and distinct temptations and who would overwhelm and conquer each of them and very soon himself forever change the course of human history. His example is the example that all of us need today. And that same spirit that compelled Jesus is the one that he's promised, the helper he's promised to inhabit and dwell within each and every one of us. Jesus shows us that the one who is within us is greater than the one who's within this world this wilderness. And in this wilderness, there's something interesting. I, you know how sometimes you read a text and you, you, you just, you, you take it for granted over the years and you just read over things and don't stop to actually look at what's there? Something in the text this week just grabbed hold of my attention, this idea that while he's in the wilderness, angels were minister, ministering to him. What's that about? Man, that would be so cool. I would love to have angels ministering to me here. That would be great in this wilderness. I mean, the Holy Spirit, it's, it's, he's inside of me. That's wonderful. But it'd also be nice to have some angels ministering. I started doing some reading and cross-referencing and found this text in Hebrews 
chapter 1, 14. Curious. The angels are ministering to Jesus in the wilderness. And perhaps as the writer of Hebrews alludes, they are still ministering to all of us who will one day inherit salvation. Speaking of the angels, of the spirits, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation? Hmm. Mark is writing to readers living in hostile times, facing an alarming amount of persecution and turmoil. And the readers of long ago, in many ways, are not very different than the readers of today. And both groups of readers, the original readers of Mark's gospel and those today who are reading, both of us follow the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the God who never changes. And Jesus' victory in the wilderness here, it foreshadows the greater victory he will have that we will study later, his victory over sin and death. And because of his victory, because he is victorious, those who believe and embrace and follow him also will stand in victory. Amen? It is the truth. And here we are. How is it hopeful? How is it good news today for you, for me, for us? Jesus is Lord. He is victorious. He is faithful to be present with us, giving us strength and motivating endurance as we walk by faith through the peaks and the valleys of this, our present wilderness. As our team comes, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the example and the testimony of Jesus. He is the ever true and faithful one. He is the one that models the obedience that you desire to see in your children today. Lord, our mission to walk by faith is not always one that comes easily. Our eyes are easily distracted by the things of this world. There are many bright and shiny things. Help us to keep our eyes on the one that you've sent, the greatest treasure of all. The one who is to demand all of our attention, all of our focus. The one who we are to set our minds on. The one who is above. And Lord, help us to be changed and moved by his life and his example and his testimony. Remind us that your spirit is with us in our wilderness. Empower us. Fuel us, Lord, move us to reach the people that you've planted in our neighborhoods, at our jobs, in our schools, in our churches, in our families, and communities that do not yet know of this great hope, this great news that we've been given in Jesus. It is the greatest news that we could ever receive, for you are the greatest God that there ever will be, or that there ever has been. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you are here today and you don't yet know of that freedom, and you have never yet received or heard that good news and understood Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you heard the good news today.
And now's an opportunity to respond. Would you bow and pray with me? Lord, you've sent your son into this world. And you sent him a savior of the world, the promised Messiah. And he did the work that you called him to do. He went to the cross. And he shed his blood to cover our sin. And he died the death that we deserve to die. And then by your power at work within him, he conquered death and rose from the dead so that we may be alive and have life with you for eternity. And Father, if we've heard this news today for the first time in a way that's changed our hearts and minds, to give up our old allegiances, our old ways of sin and death and walking in darkness. And Lord, we just want to confess with our mouth right now that you, that Jesus is Lord, that you have sent him and that he is Lord. And we just want to acknowledge before you that we believe in our heart that you have raised him from the dead. Lord, we acknowledge that we're not enough to save ourselves, that we are sin-filled. And we don't want to follow those ways of sin anymore. We want to confess right now, turn those over to you. Confess them and receive the forgiveness that's promised in Jesus. And then, Lord, we want to open our eyes as we end our prayer to a new reality that right now, if we've confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in our heart that you've raised him from the dead, that right now, today, we have the gift of eternal life. It's a free gift that you've given for all who believe. And behind that gift, Lord, is abundant and eternal life. And we've received it today. For those in this room that have already prayed that prayer and received that free gift of eternal life, and Father, I just pray that you would grow us in faithfulness and love. Help us to walk in a way that honors you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.